a new book so you can open in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. And uh, if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand. And if someone could just flip on the rest of the lights, because the back half of the room is still uh, in the kingdom of darkness, you know. And we are in Colossians chapter 1, New Testament book of Colossians. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Perhaps you heard the story of the eight-year-old young boy who desperately wanted a bicycle for Christmas. And he asked his mother if he could have a bicycle, and finances were tight, and she wasn't sure if they were going to be able to afford it. And so she, she was giving him the runaround each time he would come to her and ask. And yet he would press the issue and say, please, Mommy, please, Mommy, please, Mommy. And she would say, well, ask Santa Claus, dear. And he would say, Mommy, I know there's no such thing as Santa Claus, Mommy, please. I, I, and she said, oh, well, money's tight this year, son. I'm just not sure if we're going to be able. And, he, and finally, in a stroke of genius, she said, why don't you pray for a new bike? And maybe God will give it to you or provide for you to have a new bike. And so he went into the family's little shrine room. They were a a, a religious family, and they had a a room with statues and little candles. And and it was Christmas time, so the mother had set up a nativity scene in there. And, And so he goes in the room, and he gets down on his knees, and he begins to ask God, please, God, give me a bike. Please, God, give me a bike. But no matter how much he prayed, he just had trouble believing that God was going to give him a bike. And so he hatched a plan. He stood up in that little room and he looked to the left and to the right. And he grabbed the little baby Jesus out of the manger. And he went and he took it into his bedroom and he shoved it underneath the mattress. And then he scurried back into the little room where the nativity scene had been set up. And he got back down on his knees and he looked up one more time. And he said, now God, if you ever want to see your son again... (laughs) Now, we laugh at that because it borders on the ridiculous. You cannot misplace the Son of God. You can't remove him from the place that he is supposed to be and think that he is actually lost. But what we find as we are introduced to this church at Colossae is that they had done just that. They had misplaced the sun. Not a statue, but in stature. That is, they failed to comprehend, realize, and really put in place Jesus or understand, first of all, his person. That they were amiss as far as understanding who he was. Not only his person, but also his position. That is the authority that he has being the son of God. That all judgment, Jesus said, is committed to the son. And they failed to comprehend, to understand the position that Jesus held. Also, they failed to recognize his power. That is the authority that he carries. The the sufficiency that is in him and in his name alone. They failed to comprehend it. 
And then finally, and most importantly, they failed to understand, to comprehend his personal interest in their lives. So they failed, they misplaced Jesus, if you would, in that they didn't recognize or realize or apprehend the sufficiency of who he was. He was misplaced in their midst. Now, the natural consequence of that failure is that instead of placing their full faith and full trust and total dependence upon Jesus Christ, it caused them to, by default, look to man instead. They were looking at man for their spiritual direction, as their spiritual advisors, as those that would be their connection or their intercession to God, instead of going right to the Lord through his son that God provided, it caused them to look to a man, and therefore they found themselves on the fringes of deception. They were in danger of being deceived or veering off course into an area that they shouldn't be in because of their failure to place the son, to place Jesus in his place of rightful uh, you know, belonging or position there within their midst. Now, the church at Colossae was not started by the Apostle Paul. He's going to tell them in chapter 2 that they have never seen his face in the flesh. Most likely, it was started by one of Paul's guys, Epaphras who Paul mentions in in chapter 1 when we get down around verses 7 and 8 as the one who declared unto them the gospel. He was one of Paul's men, one of Paul's guys, and he had some involvement in the church there, and he was the one that was bringing word to Paul of the establishing of the church and also the well-being of the church. And in some ways, they were doing very well. But in one way in particular, that is the, 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 the position or the elevation or the place of Christ, it was a miss. And so Paul writes, and this is Paul's whole entire agenda in writing the book of Colossians. He says two things. He has two points essentially in this book. Number one is that he is seeking to elevate and magnify Jesus Christ in his person in his position, in his power, and in his personal interest in their lives, number one, to put Christ back in his rightful place in their midst. That's number one. And then number two is to issue a very clear and concise warning to them. And it's a warning that rings throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, and it comes to us as we study the book of Colossians. And that warning, very clear from the mouth of Paul, Beware of men. Trust in Christ. Beware of men. Four times in chapter 2, Paul is going to say, Beware of men. Be careful. Because if Jesus is not in his rightful place in your church or in your life personally, then by default, you're going to look to a man as your spiritual advisor or spiritual help And when you do that, instead of going directly to Christ, which is what the new covenant is all about, you fall into an error, a dangerous place, close to the edge. So, elevate Christ, beware of men. It breaks down like this. Chapter 1, 
is a comprehensive demonstration of who Jesus is. That's Paul's whole theme as we go through chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the warning. Four times in that chapter, beware of men and the deception that can come from following a man in four different areas in chapter 2. In chapter 3 and 4, then, he says, these are now the outward characteristics of a true follower of Christ. And he just lays out, it's very similar in sound to what we heard in Ephesians and somewhat in Philippians. And and he gives to us those things as he writes to that church at Colossae. So, elevate Christ, beware of men. Now, let's get right into the text here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives them a very standard greeting. He introduces himself by name and by ministry as is very customary for him in the letters that he writes. He says, Paul, an apostle. And we're familiar with that language because we've heard it at the beginning of just about every one of Paul's letters that he writes. But in establishing himself as an apostle to this particular church, it it, it means something else. It, It rings at a higher level or resonates to a different tone. Why? Well, What is an apostle? An apostle was someone who was called, equipped, and sent by God to establish a particular work in the kingdom of God. It's interesting when you read Revelation chapter 21 and we're given the vision there of the new Jerusalem, that city that will come down from heaven from God that's been prepared for us to inhabit for all of eternity. And the description of it is glorious. And John tells us there that the wall of the city has 12 foundations. And that in those 12 foundations are the names of the apostles of the Lamb. That is, those whom were picked personally by Jesus to be the pillars or the foundation, if you would, of the church. And the things of the church. And I believe that Paul's name will be among them. I don't think Judas Iscariot will be etched into one of those emerald colors that's there. I believe Paul's name, that that was God's appointed apostle that would replace, according to the scriptures, you know. And Paul identifies himself as an apostle. He says, Paul, an apostle. And he was one that laid the foundation for the church. In what way? Well, Paul was specifically the apostle of grace. Paul had an understanding and a comprehension of grace that superseded that of any of the other early church apostles or fathers. He wasn't the inventor of grace. He didn't think it up in his own mind, but it was revealed to him. He was given the understanding, the comprehension, and then he was given the ministry of grace to reveal to the church the saints the riches of the glory of the mystery and the depths and the power of what grace is and what grace does. Now, it wasn't a doctrine, per se, that was essential in what Paul was bringing or his apostleship. It's not the doctrine of grace that's important, although that's important. It's the experience of grace. 
And as we discover Jesus in chapter 1 of Colossians and then the warnings and applications of Paul throughout the rest, what we're going to get is really a, a deeper look at what grace is. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? What does the grace that Jesus purchased through his blood afford us? What does it mean to us? And what should it do within our lives? And so when Paul calls himself an apostle here, it's important. Because he was the apostle of grace and he's seeking to impart something to them. He's seeking to give them understanding of something that will revolutionize their relationship with God. Grace. And so he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, who was Paul's companion, our brother. And then he gives his common, you know, addendum to that. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, always coupled together and always in that order in Paul's addresses. Grace was the common Greek order you know, uh, meeting. It was charis. They would meet each other uh, on the street, the Greeks, and, and they would say charis, just like we say hi. You know, it's, it doesn't have the same ring to it, but, but it was kind of the same thing. They would say grace. The common Hebrew greeting was shalom or peace. They would say to each other as they would meet on the street. We still do that in, in the city. It would go peace, you know. That's, that's common. We do that in America as well, you know. But Paul, he takes the Greek greeting of grace, the Hebrew greeting of peace, he combines them in his, his typical signature greeting. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God gives to us. He extends to us grace. Free forgiveness that was purchased at the hand of Jesus Christ, at the blood of Jesus Christ. He invites us to become citizens of his kingdom fellow heirs of eternity that is to come. And he makes us one with himself by his grace. And the result of grace is that we experience God's peace. And so on so many levels, Paul just wishes the best for them as he just greets them. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then he moves into his introduction. After his greeting, now he's going to introduce his agenda as he begins here. And in verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Paul says, we've been praying for you. I, I've never seen you before. I didn't have the, the privilege of starting the church there as I did with so many others, but we've heard of what's taking place in your midst. And ever since we heard about, first of all, your faith in Jesus Christ, that's what saves us. That was the signature that the people in Colossae belonged to Jesus Christ, is that they had faith in his name. For by grace you are saved through faith, Paul said to the Ephesians. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. They were saved by faith in Christ. And so Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, we've been praying because we know that if you have faith in Christ, you belong to Christ, you're saved. 
And then he says, we also heard about the love which you have towards all the saints. Love is the proof that you're saved. So faith is the ingredient whereby you're saved. Love is the proof that you are saved. Once you love someone other than yourself, that's the evidence that Jesus Christ is working in your life. So Paul says, wow, you've got faith, you've got love. And then he says also, and for the hope. We heard about the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Hope is what sustains us. Faith saves us. Love proves that we're saved. And hope that's stored up for us in heaven, that sustains us. Because, man, there are some things that can happen on this planet that can just wipe out your love, right? And that can shake your faith. But when you have hope, your faith and your love are sustained. And Paul says, man, we heard of your love, or your faith, your love, and your hope. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul was talking about the highest achievement of the Christian life. It's a chapter all about love. It's that chapter where he says love is patient and kind and all of those things that we'll never measure up to, you know. But that we so appreciate about Jesus extending towards us. And at the end of that chapter, he says, now abide these three, the three highest facets of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And Paul says, I rejoice and pray for you because I've heard that you have faith in Christ, you have love towards the saints, and you have hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And, and that hope, it doesn't make a shame. And now, when did that come? He says that you that you, you know, received when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel. When did faith, hope, and love come to the Colossians? It was when they heard the word of the truth of the gospel preached unto them. The word gospel means good news. It's very simple. In the, in the Greek, it, it, you know, it's translated gospel, but what the word means is good news. Well, what is the good news? The good news is not good news until you first understand the bad news. The bad news is that man, that includes every single one of us, male and female, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has missed the mark of God's perfection, and thereby we have disqualified ourselves from inheriting his favor in his eternal kingdom. We are born into this world lost, sinful, alienated people. We don't have God's favor. We don't have God's light. We don't know why we exist or we have no sense of destiny. Everything about us is flipped completely inside out. We live completely for ourselves and we are completely depraved in ourselves. That's the bad news. Now the beginning of the good news is that God didn't leave us in that state. He didn't just say, ah, well, I failed in that endeavor to try to make a creation, you know, so I'm just going to use it as a golf ball. I'm going to put it in my golf bag, and when the time is right, I'll set it up on a golf tee, and I'll just drive them all into outer darkness. No, 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 that wasn't God's heart towards a fallen planet, towards fallen man. Not only did he not resign us to destruction, but also he didn't give us a set of rules that we would never be able to keep as the means of our salvation. He did give a set of rules, didn't he? 
What was given by Moses? What were those 614 commands that came down that touched everything from their diet to their speech to their thoughts? It was a list of God's righteous requirements. But those things were never intended to save us. Rather, they were intended to show us the truth about ourselves. If you would, they revealed the bad news. Because without the law, we would never recognize or realize that we were in bad shape. So God didn't resign us to destruction, nor did he make a bunch of hoops and religious rituals that we would jump through to be saved. But rather, he provided a way for us to be redeemed, brought back into fellowship with himself. By sending his son into the world, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That God provided a way through his son. He paid the price in full with the most precious substance in all of the universe, the very blood of his son, Jesus. And now he gives us the chance to come to him by faith and be completely forgiven of our sins by simply putting faith in his name, making a decision to follow him, and then a profession of faith and belief in his name. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's good news, isn't it? That we were lost... And yet God reached down and he saved us. And Paul says, when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel, it did something inside of you. It produced faith in Jesus Christ. Automatically, it also produced a transformation inside of you. Because now you have love towards other people that you never had previously. And then it filled you with hope. It wasn't a blind hope. It wasn't a you know, lottery type of hope. It was a real hope, a deep hope, a seeded hope that God placed in there, that there's something on the outside and something has happened in my life that I have been translated from the kingdom of darkness and I've been placed into something that's so far beyond my comprehension or that which I'll ever understand, but it's so real and the hope is so alive within me, I can almost taste it. And Paul said all of that happened just because you heard the word of the truth of the gospel. So amazing, isn't it? What does the gospel do when it is preached and when it is heard? Well, look at verse 6. He says, The gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you. The gospel, when it is preached, brings forth fruit. People don't bring forth fruit. Works and effort don't bring forth fruit. But the gospel, that is the word of the truth of the gospel, that brings forth fruit. I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. He said this. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. C.H. Spurgeon was asked one time, how do you defend the gospel? He was asked, how do you defend the Christian faith? How do you defend the gospel? And, and he, his answer was quick and, 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 you know, he laughed. He goes, defend the gospel? I don't defend the gospel. I just simply let it out. 
like you would let a lion out of its cage. How do you defend a lion, Spurgeon said? You just let it out. I don't defend the gospel, I let it out, and it does the rest. And I don't know if you found that, but the gospel is powerful to save. There's nothing more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 10 of Romans, the Apostle Paul is talking about how to receive Christ. It's that part where he says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And then he says, how would someone hear that message without a preacher? And how would there be a preacher unless someone is sent? And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of them which preach the gospel of peace. And he finishes it by saying this. So then, and listen carefully, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith in Jesus Christ doesn't come when a person sees God do a miracle. Faith doesn't come when a person has their prayers answered. Faith doesn't come when that provision finally comes. None of those things produce faith. But do you know what does produce faith? Is when someone hears the word of God. There is a supernatural living element to the word of God. Specifically here, the word of the gospel. And Paul says, the gospel has come unto you. And as it is everywhere it goes, it is bringing forth fruit. And it is bringing forth fruit in you. Listen, if you're seeking to see someone saved, share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be afraid of what they're going to say to you or the ridicule that they might place upon you or how they might slander you towards other people. Because if you just simply give them the simple gospel that they're lost in their transgressions and sins, but that Jesus made a way through the blood of the cross for them to be saved. Though they might scoff at you, though they might laugh, though they might scornfully mock and slander you behind closed doors, that word that went in through their ears has begun doing its work. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Share the gospel. Paul says, man, you heard the gospel. He said, It's bringing forth fruit everywhere it goes, and it's bringing forth in you that same fruit. He says, since the day that you heard it, and and since you knew the grace of God in truth. And so he talks to them about the gospel, this good news that they have heard. And then he tells them what they already know, the messenger that brought them the gospel. Look at verse 7. He says, as you also learned of Epaphras. The gospel which was taught to you by Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras was the preacher that brought to you the good news that has transformed your city and is transforming your lives by the power of this gospel. He's a good minister. He brought you the gospel, and then he brought word back to us. He's the one that has done it, and now he is the reason why we've heard of you and why this letter is coming forth to you. So now Paul moves on. He's given them his greeting. He's given them the introduction, and now in verse 9 he moves into his prayer. He kind of opens up in prayer as he jumps into his topic, much like we do, you know. He says in verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you 
and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The first thing that Paul prays for this church is that they would know the will of God for them, probably as a body corporately, but also as Christians individually. That they would know the will of God for their lives in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Have you ever watched a mouse try to work its way through one of those little experimental labyrinths? You know, and, and, and you're kind of watching, maybe you're just watching it on TV or you've seen it in a science museum or in a school classroom setting somewhere. And, you, and you're watching this mouse as it's seeking to make its way and weave through these channels. And, and you're almost, you're rooting for the mouse. No, turn left, turn left, you're going the wrong. No, oh, that's a dead end. You've already been down that road, you know. You ever feel like that mouse in your life? You ever feel like, you know, you know, I'm just working my way down these channels and I'm trying to find my way to something, but I can't quite get there and I don't really even know what it is, but I'm hoping it's cheese. You know, and, and so and you kind of feel like that's your life. Yeah, you know, God is up there somewhere. He's got me on this path. He's got a will. He's got something that he's doing, but all I can see are walls dead end and sky and it just seems like it's just a a total path of frustration and sometimes you just find yourself crying out and saying lord what is your will what is your will for my life what is it that you want lord in this place that i'm in i feel that i've lost all sense of direction all sense of destiny all sense of even hope that there was ever something going on in my life because this place that i'm in just makes no sense to me at all whatsoever what is it that you're doing and so you find yourself if you're like me trying to guess what god's will is well i'll just go down this path or I'll go down that path, you know, or, oh, this is how God wants to work it out. Maybe, and, and you try all these things. Here's the problem with that. The Bible declares Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Listen to what God says. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul picked up on this same concept in Romans, the book of Romans chapter 11 in verse 33. Listen to what Paul says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? How many of us have tried to be God's counselor? Well, no, no, Lord, this is how it's supposed to work out in my life. This is the, the way you're supposed to lead me, and how the, the path is supposed to converge, and everything is supposed to fall into place. And, and, and Lord, it's just not happening according to plan, the, the plan that, that I've contrived for my life of yours, that you have for me as you bless me, Lord. Listen. His ways are not our ways. They're as high as the heavens above our ways. They're past finding out. Oh, the depths of the riches of his plan, of his wisdom. It's past finding out. We cannot know what it is. Therefore, 
Because we don't know the mind of the Lord, because we don't know what he's doing or what he's trying to bring forth or what these walls and this frustration is all about, we need wisdom and spiritual understanding. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Understanding is knowing what's going on. And so this is what Paul is praying. He says that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would know what his will is in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you would possess these great things. Now, as you read the word of God, you begin to discover the will of God because it's written right there on the pages of Scripture. You read 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and you read, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy might be full. And so you read that, and you discover there that God's will for your life is that you might know him intimately, experience fellowship with him personally, and that that would result in joy in your heart, overflowing. That's God's will. And then you keep reading. You read John chapter 10, verse 10, and you hear Jesus say, The thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so you discover that God's will for your life is that you would have abundant life, that you would experience life in abundance according to God's definition of the abundant life. You read John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, and there Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so you discover that God's will for your life is that you would be free in the full sense of the word, in every area, in arena, where freedom can be experienced, it's his will that you experience freedom. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart as holy for the Lord. And so his will for your life is that you be set apart for him, that you would, you would belong personally, intimately to him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. And so God's will for you is that you would have a thankful heart. You read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. We all know this verse. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you or to bring you to an expected end that he has a plan he's got a destiny a destination that he has established for your life there's a course that you're on and his will is to bring you to that place of completion that you would experience his fullness and the fullness of his plan for your life and then philippians chapter 1 verse 6 you read and it says he listen carefully he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So whatever God's will is for your life, he started it and he's going to finish it. Now, spiritual understanding, as Paul prays that they would have, 
is understanding that these are the things that God is seeking to accomplish in your life. Understand that God has a will and he's seeking to bring forth these things within your life and he knows how to do it. Therefore, wisdom, as Paul prays that they would have, wisdom is resting in the confidence that he's going to do it. That no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, no matter how confusing the circumstances might seem to be, no matter how in the dark you might feel about the circumstances, he knows exactly what he's doing. Understanding is seeing it in scripture and believing it. Wisdom is resting and trusting in confidence that he is going to complete it. Now, what part do we play then? If it's his plan and he's the one that's bringing it forth and he's allowing all these things to happen to make these things happen, then what part do I play? Well, notice what Paul goes on to pray in verse 10. He says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, whenever you see that word walk, it's not talking about a physical, literal step that you take as you go from point A to point B. But rather, it's talking about the way you conduct yourself in the world that we're in now, the way that you live your life. That's your walk. The way you are, not while you're seated in church, but while you're out there in the world. And what does he say about it? He says that you would walk worthy the word worthy means of equal weight and the picture is that of a scale wherein you would be bartering or trading and on one side of the scale would be the shekel or the denarii the unit of money and on the other side would be the product whether it would be an ephah of wheat or barley or some good that would be sold there in the market and when there would be an equal weight when the balance would be equal, they would, you know, they would shout this word in the Greek, worthy, which meant equal, that they were the same. And so what Paul is saying here is that we, and he's praying this for us, that we might live lives that are of equal weight with the Lord. All right, now go do that this week. And God bless you. It's a paradox. Wait, wait, Paul, you're saying... That on one side of this scale, we're going to take Jesus in all of his perfection, in all of his glory. The one who, when he was opened up, light shined out that was so bright that no one could look at it. If I was opened up, everyone would run away screaming. And you're saying that somehow I'm supposed to put Jesus on one side of the scale. And you see the thing come down, you know. And now I'm supposed to get on the other side, my life, my righteousness, my goodness, my faithfulness, my deeds and, you know, my devotion and prayer life. And, and it's supposed to come to a balance. My life worth of equal weight to Jesus. <laughs> Paul, you, you could put... That, what are you trying to tell me? I mean, what kind of a trip are you trying to lay on me, Paul? It's a paradox. It's impossible. It can't be done. Scripture even backs that up. Because when you get to Revelation chapter 5, when the title deed to the earth is about to be returned to its rightful owner, put into the hand of God, it's been taken by Satan. Totally different Bible study, but just follow me. And it's got to go back now John, who's seeing this happen, he says he scanned the whole world 
looking for someone who was worthy. Someone who had the weight or the value to take the scroll and to open its seals. And it says that he wept much because he looked in the earth, he looked above the earth, and he looked below the earth, and he found no one that was worthy to take the scroll and loose the seals. And so much so, it caused him to weep. Hopelessness filled him because there was none that was worthy to take the scroll. And then a large angel touches John and he says, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to take the scroll and loose the seals thereof. And John says that he looked. And behold, a lamb, having been slain from the foundation of the world, took the scroll. And the shout of those that surrounded the throne was worthy, worthy is the Lord to loose the scroll. So what does Paul mean telling us Be equal in your value to the Lord. Because there's none worthy. The Bible says that there's none worthy. How could I be of equal weight? Here's the answer. They came to Jesus. It's in John chapter 6 verses 28 and 29. It says that they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? They come and they say, What's it going to take? How do we find favor with God? How do we bring ourselves into a place of equality with the righteousness of Christ. How do we do it? And Jesus answers, verse 29, it says that Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. This is the work. This is how you please God. This is how you walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. You believe on him whom he has sent. Because when you put your faith in Christ, guess what happens? A great thing happens. A powerful thing happens. You know what happens? You are supernaturally transferred from the side of the scale you're on to the same side that Jesus is on. You're placed in Christ, the Bible says. And when you believe in Christ and you're placed in Christ, you become of equal weight with Christ because you are one with Christ. You're no longer on a separate side of the scale trying to pile on your works, pile on the effort, pile on the prayer, pile on church services and Bible studies and ministry ventures and trying to do more and more and more for the Lord. No, 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 no. You believe on him. Your salvation, your favor, your riches, your glory, it's not from you. It's from him. You believe on him whom he has sent and you are placed in Christ. And therefore, now you are in a position where you can please God. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, listen, being fruitful in every good work. You see, once you're in Christ, now your your life is positioned in the right place. You're in Jesus Christ. You're intimate with him. You're drawing from him. He's your life. He's your source. He's everything to you. You're being fed. You're being nourished. You're being watered by his spirit constantly working in your life. And you know what begins to happen? You start to bear spiritual fruit. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And so as we abide in Christ, as we are one with Christ, as we believe in Christ, the automatic thing, the natural thing that begins to happen is that we begin to bear spiritual fruit. The nature of Christ becomes apparent within us. Little teeny bit. So little. Almost seems imperceptible. But it grows as we abide. And as it grows up in us and we become transformed, it begins to spill over and affect other people as well. And we become fruitful in every good work. So a fruitful life is not based upon our effort or our sweat or our works or our devotion. But rather, a fruitful life comes from abiding in Christ, relying on him, depending upon him, growing in him, and it grows like a baby in the womb. It just starts to happen. Being fruitful unto every good work, and then he says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The word increasing, it's in, the, in the Greek language, the word is defined as to cause to grow. To cause to grow. And in most times in the New Testament, that word is translated grow. And so what he is praying for them is that they would grow. That you would grow in the knowledge of God. Now, he's not talking about theology. He's not talking about Bible verses. He's not talking about doctrines. He's talking about knowing God. The knowledge of God in the scripture is always knowing God. And so that's his prayer for them is that they would know. Now... Listen to the things that he has prayed for them. He has prayed that they would know his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing through their faith in Christ. He's prayed that they might uh, have a fruitful life as they abide in Christ. And that they might have steady growth as they continue walking with him. That there would be these four things that would be taking place within them. Now, all of those things are things that don't happen overnight or happen all at once. It's a very slow process, isn't it? As we abide in him and as we see these things take place, it's something that takes time as we're seeking to discover. Thus, listen to what he says in verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Now, pause right there. And take the verse down so that nobody can read the rest of it. Because, you you know, we're going to pretend for a minute that you don't have your Bible in your life. And you don't know what the rest of the verse says. You just heard Paul pray that you would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Now, when you hear that, what does that do in your your mind? Tell you what it does for me. I think Samson. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. And all of a sudden I can picture it in my mind. A man with flowing locks of hair, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger-like physique, and a man who would march into the territory of the Philistines and pull a city gate out of its concrete foundations, throw it up on his back and walk up a hill and put it down there just to show his strength, you know. I think of a man who could take the jawbone of a donkey and kill a thousand Philistines. I think, yes, Lord, give me the strength that, that, that Paul is praying for. Let me have the strength of all might, the power that you can give. It's interesting, there was another man. A man who found himself in a place of confusion. A place of seeking God's will. A place of frustration and fatigue. 
This man, Elijah, he ran 300 plus miles from his place in Israel. And he climbed Mount Sinai because he thought, if there's any place on the planet that I'll hear God's voice, it's Mount Sinai. And so he runs 300 miles and he climbs Mount Sinai. And he begins to wait upon the Lord there. And something interesting happens as Elijah is up there on Mount Sinai. It says, first of all, that there was a whirlwind that came. And the wind was so powerful that it literally tore the rocks in half. Now, that's a powerful wind. I've never seen, even in hurricane clips, I've never seen a wind that can tear rocks in half. But you know what it says? It says that God was not in that whirlwind. And then it says, after the whirlwind, there was an earthquake, a great shaking. Things were shaken up. But it says that God was not in the earthquake. And then it says, and after the earthquake, there was a fire. But God wasn't in the fire. And then it says, after the fire, there was a still, small voice. And the Lord said, what doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? You didn't have to come 300 miles. (laughs) See, sometimes when we think of the strength that God can give, you know, we think Samson, we think greater heights and deeper depths. But notice the kind of strength Paul is praying that they would have. He says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Because God is working in your life and he's doing these things that take time and it's growth and it's imperceptible and sometimes it's confusing, the strength so often that we need is for patience and long-suffering. To just wait while the Lord does his work because he's going to do his work. It's working. His word is working in your life. His presence, his power is working in your life. While we were away this week, uh, I stumbled across this poem. And uh, I promised I wouldn't tell you who wrote it. Um, It says this. It says, looking at the tips of the tallest pine trees... So tall, majestic, and evergreen. They appear so strong, so wise, so knowing. I forget that they only got there by growing. For they were once beginning, just like us all, close to the earth, not very tall. Almost mistaken for a common weed, just broken out of its tiny seed. Its tip only reached to the top of long grass, with only the caterpillar his questions to ask. I wonder if it realized it would one day see the sky blue, the rolling hills, the grand mountain scene. Soaring birds and songbirds would perch on its top, its questions now answered, its restlessness stopped. It reminds me, I still have a long way to go, but never stop going because you quite never know the plans God does have for his children who trust him to faithfully take them and grow them and love them. His plan remains good, though we don't yet see the fullness of the view of the tall pine trees. And it's so, I I know it's 
kind of corny, you know, a little bit, but it illustrates a powerful truth, and it's what Paul is seeking to convey as he prays for these young Christians there in Colossae. Listen, you're going to get to where God is taking you. He's going to complete the work that he's begun in you. He's got a plan, and there's a destiny, and he will be victorious in bringing you there. He's going to do it. Be patient. Have long-suffering. And here's the evidence that God has given you the strength. He says, with joyfulness. That's how you know you've got the strength of God. Because in the middle of confusion, oh, it's late. We've got to wrap this up. There's joy, and then verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father. And here's where he tells them what they do have. And listen, church, if you're discouraged tonight, if you're frustrated because of where you are or because you can't understand what God is doing in your life right now, listen to what you do have right now. This is true right now. He says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet, that is, qualified, to be partakers of, of the inheritance of the saints in light. The first thing that you have right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here tonight, is that you have been made qualified for heaven. Now think about what that means. Because in order to be qualified for heaven, you have to be perfect. In order to be qualified for heaven, it means you're perfect. Raise your hand here tonight if you're perfect. I don't see many hands. I can't raise my own. But somehow, Paul is saying, I've been qualified? What what do you mean I've been qualified to be partakers of the inheritance? Qualified for heaven? What else did the Father do? Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Not only have we been qualified for heaven, but we've been delivered from the power of darkness translated into the kingdom of his dear son, taken out of the grasp of the enemy and out of the kingdom of his darkness and placed into the kingdom of his dear son. And then finally, in verse 14, in whom, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That the price that was paid in order for you and I to be qualified to inherit heaven was the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed upon Calvary's cross, not for himself, but for you and for I. So what Paul has done in these first 14 verses of this chapter as we come to the close is that he has begun with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and then he moved to a prayer that reveals for us the Father's desire for our lives. And then he told us about the Father's work through the Son in all of that setting us up for what he's about to give us, the most comprehensive and complete illustration and understanding of the person, position, power of Jesus Christ. In all of the Bible, perhaps, in the second half of the chapter. And so he set us up for what we'll look at next week. He has set us on a course towards completion. And he is going to finish what he's begun. We're going to close and the musicians can come. It's possible to frustrate the plan that God has for your life. 
it's possible to delay the work that he is seeking to do and accomplish within you. He's got a will. He's doing something. He wants to bless you. He wants to bring you into intimacy with himself. He wants to complete you. He wants your joy to be full. This is his declared will. It's what he wants for your life. But when we resist through our stubbornness or through our unwillingness to yield in certain areas of our life or or when we give ourselves to stupid sins and we just justify, we say, well, you know, I'm still drinking on the weekends, but, you know, it's just, it's really not that big of a deal and, and I'm working on it or, listen, there's life that's more abundant than that. You're filling yourself with endless movies and media and entertainment. And, and, and listen, I'm not, I'm not condemning you. I'm not because I'm guilty of the same. But listen, there's more. There's more in the person of Christ. He wants to do more. And we can frustrate it when we are unwilling to yield. Paul's prayer for them and our prayer here is that he would be able to fulfill all of his will in our lives unresisted, unhindered, and that we might grow up into him and that Jesus might take his rightful place within our heart and lives. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your glorious word. We thank you for the power of the gospel that leads us to salvation. We thank you for the work that you're doing that you will be faithful to complete. So we pray, Lord, that you would have your way in each of our lives that you'd give us the grace to yield to you in all things, that you might fulfill your work in your way. In Jesus' name.